there, fitness enthusiasts and goal getters. Welcome to the 8020 Podcast, where we believe in breaking down the science of health and fitness while keeping it 20% lighthearted and fun. I'm your host, Coach Haley, the founder of Unstressed Athletics, a personal trainer, paramedic, and firefighter. In this podcast, we're going to explore the 80%, the hard facts, the science-backed strategies, and the proven methods that lead to success in health, fitness, and achieving your goals. But hey, we're not all about serious business here. We've reserved a solid 20% for the lighter side of things. Fun anecdotes, quirky stories, and maybe a few fitness jokes thrown in for good measure. Each week, I'm bringing in the experts, those who've mastered the art of healthy living, crushed their fitness goals, and have the knowledge to prove it. We're talking nutrition gurus, fitness pros, and goal-setting champions. Whether you're a seasoned gym goer or just getting started on your fitness journey, the 8020 Podcast has something for everyone. So join me every week as we unpack the 80%, have a laugh with the 20%, and collectively work towards a healthier, happier version of ourselves. Get ready to discover the perfect balance between science and smiles. This is the 8020 Podcast. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the 8020. Um, today, I'm really excited. We have Matt Carson here. He is a chiropractor and one of the owners of Movement MVMT, um, which actually has four clinics across Alberta three in Edmonton and one in Calgary, potentially maybe another one soon. Um, that went to the University of Western States um, in Portland. So how are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing good. How are you doing today, Haley? I'm doing great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Movement? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Movement's kind of the original clinic that we started up in St. Albert's, uh, Alberta. Um, it's a multidisciplinary clinic. We have physio, chiro, massage, and acupuncture all kind of in one location. Um, we started the clinic about four years ago, and since then have opened four clinics across Alberta. Um, we have three locations in Edmonton, like you said, and then the one location in Calgary, Market Mall Physiotherapy. So even though we have four, um, it's kind of funny because they all have different names, uh, but kind of all part of that same parent company and we all work together. Awesome. Um, what kind of demographic do you typically work with or is it all over the map? Yeah, so most of the clinics are general MSK. What that means is we'll treat anything that comes in, like aches, pains, low back pain, neck pain. Um, so the nice thing is anything that comes in, we can mostly treat. Um, that being said, um, our clinics do have partnerships with some sports groups. So in Edmonton and Calgary, we're partnered with Edmonton Sport and Social Club and Calgary Sport and Social Club. So every month we're going out supporting all their tournaments, events that they have. So we do shoot with lots of athletes there. Um, we also work out with the NRL, so National Ring at League of Canada, so treating all their players, um, and also work with a bunch of different other sports teams. Um, personally, I really like rock climbing, so we go to all Rock Jungles rock climbing competitions, help out there, so we'll treat a lot of them. So it's uh, definitely Very a lot cool. of a sport demographic, but uh, the cool thing about some of the clinics is we also have um, Kira in the West End is our women's health clinic in Pelvic Health. So we treat both male and female pelvic health, which is a really, really cool and underserved area in a lot of ways. So that's like another really niche market that we get to help out with. Um, and that's been really cool. Did that just start recently then or? Yeah, so Kira was the up. most recent one that we started working with. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's been maybe like six months or so now. 
Um, and so that's been awesome. Uh, and then the cool thing is um, leveraging kind of all our, our skills. So Mary Wood, one of the partners there, she's like unreal when it comes to pelvic health. Like she is so knowledgeable. She's one of the teacher for a lot of the courses. Um, so she's been training some of our pelvic therapists at uh, both the St. Albert location and our South Side location. So that they're all kind of on the same level. And it's been really, really cool having just that uh, knowledge to leverage and have everybody kind of grow together. It's funny that you say that because I actually just did a podcast on pelvic health uh, oh, really? recently. So, um, yeah, it is a kind of trending area and it's really awesome to see because it's been in the past a little bit more taboo to talk about, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and the understanding of it has been so minimal. So the fact that so many people are educating themselves in that area is really fantastic. And it's an awesome space for you to kind of grow into as well. Um, can you highlight some of the differences between a chiro physio and like a kinesiology degree? Um, I know a lot of people actually ask me that question um, mm-hmm. when they're going to seek treatment. What's the difference and what's better? And one of the cool things I think is the integration of all of those specialties together recently, I think over the last mm-hmm. like five-ish years, um, they've all been kind of working more together, which is nice to see. Yeah, no, 100%. So. Um kind of start like with a kin because I think that would be a little bit easier to explain so a kin mm-hmm. is a kinesiologist so they have a four-year undergrad degree typically at university um, what that's going to entail is just like having a really strong understanding of human anatomy biomechanics and like movement um, most of the time I'd say not all the time but most of the time um, people taking a kin degree it's a step to becoming a physio or a chiro or an OT or something else in the rehab world that might be their after degree um, so myself, um, I actually started in Kin and then I transferred because uh, I wanted to do the business side as well. And I moved to science so I could do a double major. So I did a business degree and a science degree at the same time. Um, but you were not allowed to do it at that time. I'm not sure if it's changed um, when I was at school. So I switched out of Kin. But I would say a lot of my classmates uh, and a lot of our staff all did a Kin undergrad degree. Now, uh, you mentioned kind of the integration of it. Now, currently, kins are not regulated in alberta which means that like when you go to see your physio in cairo a lot of times you'll have like benefits that go towards it so you can kind of like see them and use your benefits for it Um, some people do have benefits to go see their kin but i would say that's not the norm most people do not um, unless you have like a really good benefit package so for most part the kins come in and they work um, in adjunct with our physical therapists or chiropractors Um, So they're going to help out with things like exercise. Um, They might do some manual therapy, pin and stretch techniques, active release techniques. Um, They might do things like Graston and cupping to help the patient feel better. Um, And then even setting things up like modalities and things like that. So in our clinic, they're a very integral part of the rehab process because they're kind of an extension of both the physiotherapist and the chiropractor. Um, Some clinics, I don't know if they have as much kind of like opportunity to do that kind of stuff, but we know that the reason they're coming to work for us isn't because we're paying them an absorbent amount of money. I wish we could, but most of the time they're coming for that job experience. Like I was a kin for um, a year or two before I got into chiro school. Um, and I didn't go because I was like making a lot of money. I had a really good paying job as a lifeguard, but I left that to go get the experience because I knew that was going to be the field that I wanted to pursue. Um, so I think that's kind of generally what the kins do. Um, but apart from that, there is some specialties like kins can work with different athletes. They can work with rehab. They can work with recovery in some clinics. Um, some kins will become personal trainers. 
because I think in the kin program, you can take your CSEP where you can kind of challenge it at the end of the program. Um, and so a lot of people will use that. And then they might become something like a strength and conditioning coach or work with sports teams. So there's a lot of wide range. Like to t- say what a kin isn't is like probably easier because they, like they, there's really not too many things they can't do. <laughs> but then um, as far as in the clinical setting, they obviously can't do things that uh, some of the physical therapists and chiropractors can do. Um, but kind of jumping into that segue. Um, so I'm a chiropractor, but uh, I think if we want to make it the most simplistic form, a chiropractor focuses more on uh, kind of manipulation or adjustments. Um, so those are just getting the joints moving better and kind of in their proper position sometimes. Um, if we're trying to compare that against a physical therapist, a physical therapist is going to use techniques and tools to get people move better, such as like modalities, things like dry needling, um, lots of exercise education. Um, but this being said, both chiros and physios and acupuncturists can all do things like dry needling. Um, so I use a lot of dry needling in my clinic. Um, I check acupuncture and dry needling courses because I think that's a really great tool. Um, so like, what is the difference between a physio and a chiro? Um, and I always say like a good physiotherapist can learn to adjust and a good chiropractor can learn how to do like exercises and soft tissues. So if they're really good at what they do, there shouldn't be a huge difference. I think in the early stages, like right out of new school, there's going to be a huge difference because of their knowledge or extra like background. But, uh, at our clinic, we kind of work together collaboratively so that like a lot of our physios and chiros, it's going to be like interchangeable. So like if you run out of benefits for physio, you can go see our chiro and they're still going to do exercise with you. They'll do soft tissue. Um, I'm unique in that. Like most chiropractors, I'd say it wouldn't be the norm. I have an assistant that's a kinesiologist that works with me and they'll set up like our exercise program with our patients and they'll kind of go through it with all our patients, making sure they're doing some kind of active recovery um, when they're in the clinic. Um, they'll do some like the manual therapy. I've taught them how to do lots of different pin and stretch techniques, grass and cupping. So when the patient comes in, they might be doing that. We kind of work as a team. So it's kind of like a tag situation where like I'll start with them, they finish, or they'll start with the person and I finish. Um, and I think it's a better experience for the patient because now you get two sets of eyes on you instead of just one. Because I think a lot of times people look down on kins as like a lesser service when you're with a physio or chiro. But for me, like, um, a, like, they're just an amazing human being, right? We wouldn't hire someone if we didn't think they were really cool, vibey to hang out with. So when they come in, there might be somebody that, like, they'll be able to connect with you better just because they have similar interests, things like that. And that's going to help in your recovery, like, rehab program for sure. Because if you come in and you don't like me just because, like, we're not going to be able to connect with everybody. <laughs> but maybe you're going to really connect mm-hmm. with, like, Daniil. Daniil, the kin I have in uh, the Southside Clinic, uh, Freedom. She's like an unreal golfer, loves golfing all the time. So when somebody comes in and they're talking golf, she's like right about it. So I think that's a really important part of your rehab too, is just having that connection with the therapist. But in general, for breaking things down, the most simple part, like a chiropractor's get joints moving by adjustments. Physio will do exercise and modalities. But long-term, I feel like a good physio and a good chiro, they're very, very similar. Awesome. And like you said, you have that teamwork aspect in it as well. Um, I think maybe the kines, uh part of it allows you to have more time with the patient um, mm-hmm. because there's only one of you, right? And so yeah. being able to kind of allow the patient to have that connection, like you said, and maybe more of a thorough assessment, um, depending on your time and your schedule, would probably be super beneficial. 100%. Well, and I think like you, you and River have been in the clinic. I think the nice thing is we can spend a lot of time with our patients, whereas Mm-hmm. Um, when I started working, like I almost went back to school because the clinic I was at was like this five minute appointment. You come in, everybody mm-hmm. gets the same treatment. And to me, that's just like not the best quality of care, right? You really want to make sure that you're assessing someone every time. 
and seeing what's actually going on with them and coming up with some kind of sports specific goals or life specific goals for them. Totally. Um, I'm just going to ask you some common injuries that we see all the time, like in personal mm-hmm. training and healthcare that people ask about commonly. Um, can you just explain what a muscle tear is and also how you guys use the grading system with that? For sure. So a muscle tear, if we think about it, is um, muscles are just fibers that are being connected. And so they can be torn because of like excess load on them a lot of times. Um, So it can be things from like repetitive overuse or from traumas. Now, depending on what's going on with the person, that will kind of help distinguish what type of grade they'll also have too. So a grade one is like a mild damage to the individual muscle fibers. So typically the categorization is less than 5% of the fibers um, have a minimal loss of strength um, and motion. So in theory, it'll be sore, it'll be achy, but they'll still be able to function somewhat normally. Um, Then when we have like a grade two, that's more extensive damage um, with more fibers being involved. Um, And so that's like a partial tear. So if we think about that, like grade one is there's some damage, it's a little bit irritated, um, but it's definitely going to heal back quick. Grade two, there's a partial tear and we have to be a little bit more thorough with how we're going to rehab that person, um, getting them feeling stronger. And then grade three is that complete rupture. So you have a complete tear of the muscle um, and sometimes it'll require surgery to repair, depending on the age of the person, physical conditioning, um, it's most likely going to be some kind of surgical repair. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to also ask about rotator cuff injuries, just because that one is very common. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you find people typically injure their rotator cuff in in general? And how can they assess whether they do have a rotator cuff injury? Because I know so many people with shoulder pain are always curious if their rotator cuff is torn or partially torn or if there's inflammation in there. Um, Is there Mm -hmm. anything that listeners can do maybe at home to give themselves a little self-assessment before they come see you guys? Yeah, so some of the common signs that somebody might come in with would be uh, pain or weakness when moving the arm. A big one for me, I would say, like, when they have a full tear or at least a partial tear that somebody will tell me is, like, oh, I have pain, like, at rest at night. When they're sleeping and trying to go to bed, like, their shoulder is just, like, killing them. And that's because when we're sitting and moving throughout the day, our body is in a much more loaded, like, compact position. You have other muscles co-activating, stabilizing the shoulder. But... When you're like sleeping at night, what's going to happen is those muscles are going to kind of relax and then that torn muscle is just going to get into some weird length of position and causes lots of pain. So typically what we like do in the clinic is it's really tough to say, is there one thing that someone can do at home to kind of test? Because it normally like physios, chiros, we do a barrage of tests. And if we have like a three or four tests, that increases the likelihood that they may have a tear. Um, so those are pretty hard. So I'd always say recommend trying to hop in, seeing your physio or chiro get a thorough assessment because even on assessment, um, I have a good example. I had a patient come in. He's a very, very strong, strong, physically strong dude that uh, I play sports with. And he came in with a fall that he had slipped on ice and and threw his arm out and uh, landed on it pretty rough. And it was pretty sore after, but it wasn't like unbearable, um, but definitely some weakness. So we thought there was like some kind of partial tear going on. But when we ended up sending him for imaging, um, he had three full rupture tears out of four on his rotator cuff. Oh, no. And like, <laughs> when we muscle tested him, he was like five out of five in all directions. Like he was still super strong, just like felt a little bit weaker than he had been. Um, and so that's like a great point to show that like a lot of times we'll have to do an ultrasound to kind of confirm that. <clears throat> but mm-hmm. the interesting thing with rotator cuff tears is it almost increases 10% every year after the age of 40, the likelihood of having one. So from 40, 40% of the population will have one at 40, 50% will have them at 50. And it kind of goes up from there. 
Um, but just because you have a rotator cuff tear doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be painful. They had uh, mm-hmm. this really cool study that they were doing showing what a like rotator cuff tear looks like under ultrasound with this like professional baseball player. And they showed the side that he had a tear in. And they're like, well, we should also show what a healthy one looks like. And they showed his other shoulder. And he actually had tears in both of them. But he had no pain. He functioned fully normal on the other side. So just because we have a tear doesn't mean that um, we're actually going to feel it or have any pain. So I think it's really important that we always rely on like um, imaging because that's going to be kind of our gold standard to show that like, yeah, you definitely do have a tear um, and it will help us like to improve our rehab because if we know exactly which muscle is torn, that's going to give us a better like rehab outcome. Now you don't always need to do imaging, but for sure it's definitely going to help guide things along the way. Um, but so totally. as far as uh, giving them tips, it's tough because like, I wouldn't want to give you something and then you do it at home. You're like, oh, I definitely have a tear because even myself, when I'm assessing someone, I might not think that they have a full tear and then the imaging comes back and it's full mm-hmm. or the opposite's true. I'm like, this person definitely has a tear and it comes back and they're just really, really weak. Totally. Um, it kind of emphasizes the importance of working on all the stabilizer muscles around the shoulder as well. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess around the knees, the knees too, typically would be the two areas that we try to focus on from the training side of things, just with lateral movements and uh, stabilization. So it's really interesting to see that you can have pain or no pain. And uh, the sleeping at night tip was quite informative, I think. Just moving right along to another common injury, back pain is something that people see all the time. Um, do you have a way that you go about assessing back pain? Uh, I mean, I see it all the time in EMS and then also with training. Do you have any tips with helping with back pain or just the assessment of 100%. So um, I think you always have to assess like everything in the body, but specifically the back top down. And what I mean by top down is you're going to start from what could be the worst case scenario. And that would be like a major central nervous system injury. So spinal cord and brain. And so when we think of injuries like that, we could have um, some kind of like impingement on like your spinal cord on your brain that might be causing some weird symptoms down both arms, down both legs um, and causing things like back pain. And so we have to rule out that and make sure that's not actually what's going on with the patient. Then once we've ruled out something more central, um, we can move into peripheral type injuries. So that might be a nerve pinched in the periphery. So something like your sciatic nerve. Or it might be something like um, you have your femoral nerve that could be irritated in the front of the thigh. So once we kind of figure out what's going on there, that'll give us more information on why the patient's back might be hurting. And then once we've ruled out the peripheral stuff, then we're going to go into more localized stuff, muscles, joints. So they might have a muscle tear. They might have a joint tear. And then again, once we've kind of gone through and ruled all that out, we can kind of figure out exactly what's going on with the patient. Um, For me, I'm definitely super biased. I would say most patients coming in the clinic, I think, have some kind of disc involvement. And so um, do you know what the discs are, Haley? Obviously, you would, I guess, from your like healthcare background. I do. Um, you can explain a little bit just for the listeners as well. Um, I will add that recently I just heard the statistic. There's a huge percentage of people that actually just have like a partial, partially herniated or herniated disc and just have no idea. So I think mm-hmm. just clarifying the difference between like symptomatic versus non-symptomatic is something to touch on as well. Yeah, so I think it's kind of funny, similar to how we alluded in our rotator cuff study, how a lot of people will have these and it won't even be painful. Um, The majority of the population, like almost 40 to 50% over the age of 50 will have a disc herniation in their back, but it does not mean it's going to be painful. So the issue, like previously I was talking about like, hey, we definitely want to image your shoulder. The opposite is sometimes true with the back that you don't want to image someone's back because you're going to find that they have herniations, they have stenosis, they have some kind of thing, but that might not actually be what's causing the patient's pain. 
And so I like, they have this thing in physio and chiro, we talk about that you are not your x-ray. I think it's really important for people to understand that because um, I have this one athlete I work with. He's one of like the highest level athletes in Canada, um, broke his back when he was like 40. Um, and his x-ray, if you were to look at it, like is terrible. This guy should not be like high performing. And he's like one of the highest level triathletes in Canada and at world. I think he was like seven at world for his like age category. So super high performing dude. Um, he saw six doctors that all said no sports for us, your life, live like a sedentary lifestyle. And seven said, get jacked to shit and see what happens. And so he's like one of my role models whenever I think about like what I want my patients to do, right? Like, because if you just get really strong, a lot of time the pain will go away. We have to work on like your core muscles, your stabilizers around all your hips, your shoulders. Um, so that's really, really important. But um, kind of coming back to the back pain with disc injuries, I think that's definitely something that we see way more of, especially after COVID. Everybody was sitting at home in their home offices. They were watching more TV. They weren't being as active. They kind of fell out of their like regular active lifestyles with sports. Um, and so for me, I'm very passionate about disc injuries because I actually suffered a disc injury when I was about 25 years old. Um, I had shooting pain down both my legs, um, couldn't get out of bed, had to get somebody to lift me and put the flatbed in my truck. And I was in so much pain. I thought my life was over. I was like 25 and I was like, I cannot be having this much back pain. Like, this is unreal. Um, went to a chiropractic clinic, did a lot of exercise. It took me like six to eight weeks just to get to like a somewhat normal level, like life. Um, and then once I got back out of that, I've had a few flare ups since then, but now I kind of know what type of thing set me off. And so disc injuries, the majority of the time are going to be provoked by flexion. So like repetitive sitting, repetitive bending, twisting, um, especially in the rehab world. Uh, when we think about deadlifts, deadlifts can definitely be a big trigger for people with like improper form and technique. But deadlifts are also really a strong component of the rehab program when we are getting back into like working out uh, because it is going to strengthen your back. It's going to strengthen your hamstring. It is kind of funny you say that because there is such a taboo around deadlifts and, and deadlifting. and So many people have injured themselves from deadlifts. But mm-hmm. again, it comes back to that stabilization, like building up your core and building up your back, like you're saying, and doing it with proper form and maybe understanding like the bracing technique side of it. So um, mm-hmm. I do think it's awesome that you're so focused more on the movement side of things and getting people to move again, because I think Mm -hmm. that's so important and often missed. People think a lot of the time that, and I mean, there are times where you don't want to be doing movement if you are injured, um, Mm -hmm. but trying to get back into that movement and strengthen around that injury, I think is so, so important. Um, It's going back to that pain, like pain is such a controversial topic, but uh, just for our listeners, if they are experiencing pain, when, or how do you explain to your clients when to push through uh, pain or when they should stop? Yeah, I think there's this huge thing in our like culture that pain is bad. And I would almost say it's the exact opposite. I think pain is such a great tool because pain tells us when we're doing something wrong, right? And it doesn't necessarily just mean joint pain, achy pain. Like if you eat something spicy and your gut is like, whoa, this wasn't it. <laughs> that's like a sign. I probably shouldn't do that again, right? And so many places mm-hmm. in life, like when we don't feel good, when you smell something that smells bad, you don't just keep sniffing it, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to avoid that. Um, but there's this weird thing with pain where we just mask the symptoms. We take all these like painkillers or like anti-inflammatories and like ignore it and push through it. Um, and then it just makes the issue worse. Um, nowadays, um, lots of people are using cortisone injections. And I, I actually prescribe cortisone injections for some of my patients. I have no problem with it. Um, but one of our old physios had this amazing saying that uh, cortisone injections are painting dead grass green. It looks good, except like you haven't really addressed the underlying issue, right? So um, I think it's really important that we actually use pain 
as a tool to let us know when we're progressing and know when like what we're doing is actually effectively working right so sometimes people come in they tell me they took a bunch of painkillers before they came to a session with me and it'll be really tough for me to assess them because nothing i do will cause pain for them so it's really hard but kind of getting back to your question um when do we push through pain i think it's really important that you have some kind of like dialogue with your therapist that like hey especially when we're working with athletes knowing like how much we can kind of push into right you want to push up to pain but we don't want to push through pain a lot of times especially in that early rehab process because if we're pushing through pain that's just causing injury right so it's like we're taking like two steps forward one step back every time we push into pain the best example of this is when we're working concussion patients so with concussion patients what we want to do is we want to push up to the point of symptoms but not into symptoms because with concussion patients a little bit different you might be like one step forward three steps back when we're pushing into it because you get something called burnout and so as the patient pushes into the neuro rehab we're going to be doing lots of vestibular training and things like that to get them back to their brain functioning higher but if we push them too hard, their brain's just going to be like, no, this is done. And then it's just going to crash. And that takes us so much longer. So I think it's really important. The same thing with any of our athletes or any of our like people we're working with, that when you're pushing them, we push them up to it, but not into the pain. Now, sometimes certain pains, achiness is going to be okay. But it's really hard for us to say that. Like, how do I tell someone a little bit of pain is okay, right? When you're training with people one-on-one, you can kind of be there and be like, your form looks good. This looks good. There might be a bit of pain, but that's just because you're engaging new muscles. That's something that you're going to have the ability to kind of look at and I'll be able to look at. But when you tell like our listeners and, and people like, oh, yeah, push into the pain a little bit, that's really hard. So I always say kind of push up to the pain, but don't push through it unless you're like under supervision of like a professional trainer or like a healthcare provider. Totally. Um, I think one of the biggest problems with working out and with people that are starting working out is they're not used to being uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. so I think that differentiating that uncomfortable feeling versus versus that pain feeling can be really difficult for some people uh kind of like what you were alluding to um i think one of the best ways that that i use is just whether it's like a chronic pain or an acute pain um off of the initial whenever they started feeling that pain so if they were doing something and they felt like an immediate pain from it and obviously that alludes to something that changed whereas if it's something that's been happening every time they go for a run they have sore quads i mean depending on the level of the pain and how it feels um it could be more of an uncomfortable type thing but as you said we do want people to go see a professional if they are experiencing pain it's such a weird measure because it's so different for each person i mean you could ask somebody what what are you reading? i'll say one and one person will say 10 right so oh, it's man. just a weird measure that it, it's so hard to quantify well and i can't tell you how many patients all physios it's like a running joke Every patient's going to come through and they're like, yeah, maybe a 7 out of 10 for me, but I have a really high pain threshold. Uh, everyone tells me I can I tolerate a lot of pain. And then you like push on one spot in their body and they're like, oh, like, it's just a funny situation because like, I don't know, it's this bragging right. Everyone thinks that they can endure a lot of pain and stuff. But I think to the pain thing, like I know what you guys do with your training, like um, it's really good. You're going to start someone off slow. Like I think you just want to get people comfortable with doing movement. Like whenever I'm doing exercise programming with our patients in the clinic, I'm never doing like, okay, this is the gold standard program I'd want you to do. A lot of times I actually don't care so much about getting them to do anything specific. It's just getting them in the routine of doing a daily practice. If you can do five yeah. minutes of exercise and I, I call it priming, I, like all my patients, I don't, I'm not doing like strength work with them. That's what we leave for you guys. You guys are professionals for that, right? What we're doing in the clinic is we're priming their body to move. 
for the rest of their day. So for me, I try and get all my patients to do some kind of daily routine. First thing when you wake up, let's do some exercises that'll engage your core, engage your glutes, get things feeling and moving better. And then throughout the rest of the day, it'll be good. Same thing, like a lot of patients that we work with are like desk and office workers. So their thoracic spine is just so kyphotic nowadays. Like I just like can't get over. I don't know. I've only been doing this like five, six years, but I just can't get how many people are coming in, which is like mid low back pain, even young people from like just sitting desk work and playing video games. Um, so getting their back moving and just really mobilizing that, like first thing when they work, wake up, I think is really, really huge for, for people. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, speaking about like glute engagement, I know a lot of people really struggle with engaging their glutes properly in different movements. Um, do you have any tips for people who are struggling with that or maybe even how they can identify that if they don't know if they are engaging their glutes or not? Uh, a really good test that they can do is uh, they could look in the mirror and do it. It's called the Trendelenburg sign. So what you're doing is you're standing facing the mirror and you're going to just stand on one leg as long as they're safe and they don't have any other core mobilities and they're going to fall or anything like that. Um, and what you'll see is if their hips stay level, that typically means that they're reinforcing that contralateral glute quite well, stabilizing the hip. Now, if their hips shift, um, and what that would mean is like, so the leg that they're standing on, that hip would shift down. Um, that's because the hip, the glute doesn't have enough strength to kind of maintain that hips level. And so that'd be a really great way for you to be able to tell if your like glute med, um, part of the external rotators is adequately um, firing. Another way I try and get my patients to do it is, when they're doing a glute bridge, get them to set up, um, ideally with their heels as close as they can to their glutes and doing a glute bridge, um, put their hands on their glutes. Can they feel their glutes engaging? If they don't and it's all hamstrings, that probably means that they're not firing enough there. Another one that we do is a clamshell. They can have the, their self laying on their side. And I like a clamshell. Like people will use it as this great exercise to get your glutes going. I don't know if it's the best exercise for that, to be completely honest. But for an assessment tool, you can have somebody doing a clamshell. They'll be feeling that lateral glute. And like you'll kind of show them where they should be feeling it. So I kind of say just like above your back pocket area, they have their hand there. And if they're doing the clamshell exercise and they're not feeling it there and it's all like their TFL or their lateral quad, Again, that's giving us more information that they're not engaging the right muscle. So you can kind of use this to show the patient like, hey, this isn't working well for you. Um, and then they will have a better understanding of why they're having issues with their squats or their deadlifts or lunges type exercises. Um, as far as getting them to have better engagement, like I like using like a sideline leg abduction um, with internal rotation. So they lay on their side, they're going to kind of like scissor their legs open, but it's at like a 45 degree angle. So you're going to tap your toes and then draw your heel to the back of the room. And that's a really good way to kind of get it primed. We'll use monster band walks in the clinic where we'll have the band around their knees, have them into like a bit of a deep squat and do these small lateral steps in either direction. Um, I find that gets uh, people's glutes going really good, but my favorite it's a really hard one to explain on podcast, so I apologize to all you <laughs> listeners out there. And I tried Googling it to see if this is even the appropriate name, but it's something we call in the clinic. It's a DNS five-month shoulder roll. And I'll try and explain it to the best of my ability, but what it is is you're laying in a side plank from your knee. So you're on your knee, and you're on your elbow, and you're holding this position. And what you're going to do is you're going to roll your upper extreme, like half of your body around your hip and your shoulder, and you're going to roll as much as you can, keeping that core and your back completely flat. And now what this is going to do is this is my favorite way that you can engage someone's glutes as well as a rotator cuff because it's joint centralization around that. DNS is dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, and it's a bunch of developmental movements based on how babies develop. It's a little bit weird to do in the clinic, but 
as far as getting your joints primed and feeling really good, I don't think there's anything better out there. And a lot of times, like you, you can probably mention better than me, how many of your pay, uh, clients come in with hip and shoulder problems? Like, yeah, totally. Um, I, I was think- going to say, number one, you did a great job of explaining that. But number two, it's awesome that you have an exercise that targets kind of both those things. Because yeah, shoulder pain is probably the biggest one that I see. And then mm-hmm. uh, hip pain. And then followed by that, I think knee pain, those are kind of the three big ones there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find the least understood one is probably the shoulder and the glute. Uh, Most Mm -hmm. people typically have a little bit of an understanding about their legs and their knees. So Mm -hmm. um, that exercise is awesome for that. Yeah, no, it's really good. That being said, it's probably a little bit more on the advanced side. So it'd be somebody who on the like tail end of the rehab, but for you guys getting someone primed in like the working space when they're actually working out, Mm -hmm. I think it's really good. Um, but for shoulders, I'll do lots of like kettlebell armbar or like Turkish get up type things to get their rotator cuff yeah. warmed up. Um, specifically for me, I have a bit of a flow I do to kind of warm up my shoulders before working out. And um, we were talking about back injuries earlier, and um, I had I actually think I did most likely hurt myself deadlifting with improper technique and ego lifting because I was dumb and young and I was just wanted to lift big things like the rest of the guys. And uh, now I have this routine, and if I do this routine before working out, again that idea of priming, I never hurt my back deadlifting. Mm-hmm. But I have to go down and do lots of exercises. Um, a big one for the listeners out there, if you are like even worried about getting into deadlifts, a big thing is just going to be like belly breathing, bracing. But the most like important thing I can say is like it's called a McKenzie prone extension or like a cobra pose. Um, you're going to have the patient push up into a cobra pose and at the very top of it, you're going to exhale fully. And what that's going to do is that's going to extend you back. And so that's kind of a yin and yang principle. So every time you bend forward in your day, how many times are we extending backwards? And it's almost none unless you're painting ceiling. Mm-hmm. So it's called like a prone extension and um, incorporating that into your rehab program for patients with any back pain is just going to be really huge to prevent things like disc injuries moving forward. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Cause I think a lot of people really do focus on the brace side of things and the contraction side of things and how to breathe and everything. And not a lot of people really think about that extension. We just have time for about one more question here. So uh, just for the last question to wrap it up, there's a lot of treatments out there that have a ton of evidence, like empirical evidence with them. And there's a lot that don't so how do you choose what treatments to incorporate into your practice yeah 100 so i think that's a really great question um our clinic every month uh, all the clinics we do like a lunch and learn uh, so once a month we get together and kind of go over like the most current evidence for different things based off of current literature and techniques um that being said you always want to be as much evidence standard as you can but um, sometimes it's hard because research hasn't necessarily caught up with everything, right? Things they're doing years ago, there was things that people were individually doing that there's no literature to support. But nowadays we've had enough research to catch up and show they actually were doing something right. So I think you have to have a bit of a blend of both when you can, and you do have the evidence, use it, but sometimes you're going to have to rely on your clinical experience. So the cool thing about having a big team is if there's ever anything that comes in that I'm not 100% sure about, like I put my ego aside and I'll grab like a physical therapist, I'll grab another clinician and be like, hey guys, like, do you mind taking a second look at this? So like even things like when I'm assessing someone who might have um, like an ACL tear, it feels super lax. I feel like they might have one, but there's so many other things that can be going on. Getting a second hand on there, a second set of eyes is super reliable. Um, but I do think you have to kind of work on your clinical experience and that's where having a a clinic with so many different clinicians, physios, chiros, massage, acupuncturists, the pelvic health side, um, our cell side clinic, freedom, physical therapy, Fiona is one of like the shoulder, like experts in the city when it comes to like physios, she does all the pre and post shoulder repair surgeries. So it's like amazing to have like somebody with that breadth of knowledge and experience to lean on. So I think just using 
the clinical experience of people like that and then the literature and the evidence for all our new grads and things that don't have as much of that clinical experience. Yeah, it's like uh, when we're in the field, the more lungs that you listen to, the more that you'll be able to pick up when something's wrong, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the same idea on that sense. But I am a big proponent for just for the listeners out there. It's partially their responsibility to look into whatever treatments they're getting and to research them themselves. Um, I see that a lot in healthcare where people don't know what medications they're taking or why they're taking them. And I understand that um, it is uh, the healthcare providers uh, duty on one hand to educate, but it's not all on them as a person working out or an athlete. It is partially on you as well to make sure that you're doing that research and ask whatever questions you have. Um, I think that's so important and so underutilized in our society right now. Well, I think like you brought up a huge thing. You have to be active in your healthcare nowadays. You can't just go to your doctor and rely on them to give you all the best evidence and uh, like best answers. I think we've seen that there's been a big change in that recently. And that's where having clinics like ours where it's multidisciplinary, physio, chiro, massage, acupuncture, like having a team to go to bat for you is going to be huge because unfortunately in Canada, we're going through something right now where there's just not enough doctors. There's a huge shortage. So the emergency rooms are like completely flooded with people who are going with things that they could probably go see their family doctor for normally, but nobody has a family doctor. So rather than wait a month to go and get into the see this family doctor, you're going to the ER. And so we have a lot of patients that are coming to us with a lot more medical questions. So I think that also puts the ownership on like therapists to also keep up with all their knowledge, right? If somebody's coming in, you have to really know what they're talking about. Like, into that um, but also be an advocate for them i've had lots of patients recently that should get surgery but based on some criteria they don't necessarily meet like the ideal criteria i have a one lady i'm thinking of mine she's 70 years old but she is not 70 years old she might physically be 70 years old but she's like a 50 year old lady she is so active she's always working out Mm -hmm. she's doing so much stuff and so because she's 70 years old the doctors are like she's not a good candidate for surgery but i had to do like a whole like exam on her did so many tests i had some previous outcome measures that we were doing prior to her injury and then they, I sent that into her doctor and they actually did approve her for surgery. So that's where having like a team that's going to like go to bat for you and be like supportive with you is really, really important. I think in today's medical system. I completely agree. It's really awesome to hear how much of an advocate that you are for your patients. And obviously you're taking the time there as well, because doing all those in-depth assessments and proving kind of your case, I guess, does take a lot of time. So it is awesome that you are doing that. Um, That is all the time we have left for today, but I will include in our show notes just your website for movement as well as your Instagram. Is there any other ways that listeners can get in touch with you if they would like to? Yeah, for sure. I think the best way is just hit us up on social media. Uh, It's MVMT Physio Cairo. If you have any questions, um, hit us up there and we'd love to help you out and support anything. And um, we always love working with the Unstressed Gang. You guys have like such a cool little like culture and I love all your workouts. It's been a lot of fun working with you guys. Um, and if there's any questions any of the listeners have, we'd love to help out and answer in any way we can. Totally. Um, this has been super informative and obviously we really enjoy working with you guys as well. Um, I love the team approach that you guys have and the way that you tackle all of your patient assessments, as well as the way that you decide what treatments that you're using. Um, so again, I really appreciate it and I hope you have an awesome rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks, Haley. Take care. And that wraps up another episode of the 8020 podcast. A huge thank you to our incredible guests who bring the expertise and insights to the table every time. They're the real MVPs of the 8020 podcast. If you loved what you heard today, hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And hey, if you have any burning questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please reach out. Remember, health and fitness are journeys, not destinations. 
So whether you're hitting the gym, going for a run, or just taking a moment to stretch, keep that 80-20 balance in mind. As we sign off, stay fit, stay focused, and keep that smile on your face. This is Coach Haley signing out from the 80-20 Podcast. Until next time.